again in 1 Corinthians today in the second half of a a small uh, two-part section, uh, two sermons on the Lord's Supper, examining what it is we do uh, when we come together. You might remember if you were here with us last week that we saw uh, in the first half of this section of, uh, of Scripture the sin of selfishness at work in the church and then God's grace of remembrance uh, to draw them to himself and uh, ultimately through himself to one another at the table. Today, our focus is really going to be on verses 27 uh, through 32, uh, and we're going to consider what it means to eat and drink together rightly. I'm going to read the entire passage beginning in 1 Corinthians 11:17 and going on through uh, the end in verse 34. Uh, but we will be coming back to focus really on 27 to 32. If you haven't yet found that, you can find that beginning on page 958 of our ESVs, uh, which are on the cart in the back. Now, before we go to the the Lord and His Word, uh, let us go to the Lord again in prayer. Let's pray. O God of wisdom, grace, and power, we come now to hear from You. Still our hearts and our wandering minds as we hear your word. Draw us near by your spirit to consider these living words. To consider through these words the way that you call us to participate with you at your table. That the bread that we break is a participation with Christ. And and the cup that we bless is a fellowship with you. So help us, O Lord, to consider these things aright. Oh, give us joy at your table. Give us judgment of ourselves. Help us to discern, O Lord, we pray, in your name and for the sake of your glory among your people, we ask. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it, in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and its hearing. The more that I get the chance to study 1 Corinthians, and the more that I get the chance to preach through this uh, enormous, magnificent letter, uh, the more I am drawn back to chapter 1, in a sense to set the tone for everything else that I read, and I I see traces of what I find there in chapter 1 in almost every other argument, and if you see it, if you are looking for it, you're going to begin seeing it yourself. So uh, let's consider this a twofer today, and turn back with me into chapter 1. I think this is one of the underlying currents underneath uh, almost all of the letter that he's writing. Begin reading in verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame, excuse me, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This, in a sense, sets the tone for the rest of Paul's letter. This is how God works, he is telling us. He works through things that the world considers weak and foolish. He works in that way in order to shame those things that the world considers wise and strong. He works in small things and quiet ways that are often overlooked in order to raise our esteem of Jesus Christ and put to silence our murmurings and our boastings about ourselves. The Lord works in ways that are low and despised and counted as nothing by the power brokers of human society. That's how God works in the world. More specifically, that's how God works in his church as well, isn't it? He works a powerful transformation in his people through things uh, that the world would look at and shrug off as insignificant, unimportant Things like God's people gathering together to hear his gospel preached and to offer up prayers to him in Jesus' name and to come and to celebrate him in his sacraments. Small things. Insignificant things by the world's account. And yet this is the way the Lord works. The the outward, ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of our redemption. That's what we confess together in our confession of faith. The Lord is working in these small things. And yet, could you imagine what your neighbors would think of you if you told them that is what you go to church to do every week? To hear from the Lord and to pray to the Lord and to celebrate the Lord. Could you imagine what your neighbors would think of you if you told them that this is God's master plan with the world? Worshiping people gathering together to hear and to pray and to celebrate in his name. 
But that's how he works. In weak things to shame the strong, in foolish things to shame the wise. Working wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in a weak people through a crucified and resurrected Savior. And it is so backward from the way that our sin-twisted minds work. It's no wonder the world overlooks these things. Completely misses the significance of what we do each week as we gather together. It's no wonder that sometimes we miss the balance of understanding rightly what we're doing when we come together for those three things, word and prayer and sacrament. You sometimes find that you have a hard time recognizing God's work in the small things and the insignificant things. That's how it happens in most of our Christian lives. We're converted and we expect God to show up in the fireworks, right? Then we realize that he works slowly and quietly. Over decades of hearing his word, over, over prayer in difficult times, over those small, quiet things. I think when we come to the table, we can often overlook the incredible, deep significance of what we're doing at the table. We can miss the balance that we're supposed to understand. God working His power through things that seem insignificant. That can happen in one of two ways, I think. One way is that we forget the fact that God is actually at work in these outwardly insignificant things. And the result is that we come too lightly to the table. We come without thinking. We come without preparation, without consideration in our hearts not considering the spiritual realities that are proclaimed by a piece of bread and a sip of wine. We can judge the table with an outward appearance and not with right judgment, and so we come too lightly to the table. And we miss the balance there. Then again, we can understand fully the significance of what is happening here, but we can misunderstand the fact that God delights to work His power in weak people. And so we come too timidly to the table. We come with that weekly angst of feeling that righteousness and worthiness for the table comes in our own measuring up. You must be this tall to ride this ride. Worthiness for the table comes from the sweat of our brow and the righteousness that we work with our own two hands and our own might. And we come too timidly to the table. Dear friends, these are the two bypaths we need to avoid if we want to understand what the table is all about. If we want to come in true joy and in true worship, we need to stay far away from either of these two extremes. In your own Christian life from time to time, maybe you find yourself swinging in one direction or another. But 1 Corinthians 11 gives us what we need, the understanding of what's happening at the table and, and what we need there. Uh, to help us avoid these two extremes. And so to to counteract uh, this imbalance, I want to consider together today two things that we need to know about the table. We're going to consider first what is possible at the table and second what is necessary at the table. First, let's consider together that when we come to the table, we need to be aware that judgment is possible. There is the possibility of judgment at the table. These verses before us in 1 Corinthians 11 are a warning against the judgment that comes upon those who misuse the table of the Lord. That warning is plain and easy to see, isn't it? 
You see it just in the vocabulary that it uses, just in the flow of the text. Uh, Verse 27 begins by speaking of guilt, guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Speaks later of eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. It speaks of judgment and discipline and condemnation. It goes all the way into verse 34, and Paul says, here's what you ought to do so that when you come together, it is not for judgment. You need to be aware that judgment is possible when you come to the table, he's saying. This is a warning text, that we should not come too lightly to this ordinance, to this sacrament that we'll come to later today. The whole point seems to be that Paul is setting down rules of table etiquette. There is something that could befall God's people when we come too lightly. And you need to be aware of that. That's easy enough to see. You can see it also in the experience of the church, can't you? Paul says, verse 30, Some of you are weak and ill, and some have already died. And the clear indication here is that God is judging the people in Corinth. One understanding of this text says, well, this is what you would normally get, right? He said earlier that when you come, some are hungry and others are drunk. And so those who are hungry are obviously weak. Those who are drunk must be the sick ones. No, this is judgment language. Their spiritual ills are overflowing into physical ailments and maladies and even death. The Lord is judging the people in the church there. This is a warning passage. That's easy enough to see. But, but there might be something here that you missed. There's an underlying premise beneath all of this possibility of judgment. And the underlying premise is that the table is something that is liable to misuse by those who come to it. The table can be misused. That is significant. He's telling us, in a sense, that there is a way of coming unworthily to the table to eat and drink, but there is also a way of coming worthily. There is something right about coming to the table, and there is something wrong about coming to the table. And this goes against the grain of everything in our wider culture. We live in a quote-unquote secular culture, where nothing actually exists that is truly, objectively sacred. Everything is common. Everything is one with the other, and the only difference makes, you know, that, that can make something sacred to you is how you use that thing and what that thing means to you, and does it touch some sort of inner part that gets your spirit moving and hogwash? That's the culture we're steeped in, saying, well, nothing's really objectively sacred. Those realities don't exist, and the Lord says, oh, yes, they do. This table is sacred. It is a matter of worship. It is something that I've given to you, but I still own it. It is mine, and I get to determine what you should do and how you should approach at the table. The table is liable to be misused by us. We need to understand that. We live in a culture that just loves practicality at any cost. Efficiency meeting our own felt needs, whatever suits me at the immediate moment. And isn't that the American spirit? Ingenuity and resourcefulness. Make do with what you've got. You know, the the Internet uh, now, there's a whole buzz. You've probably seen it. The word now is hacking. It used to be that you would hear hacking. You would think of computer geniuses in a basement somewhere stealing top-secret plans. No, no, no. You can hack anything in your home. You can take something that you've got, and you can use it for a different purpose. And whole uh, YouTube channels and websites are devoted to showing you how to hack the things in your home, to, to you know, use this sort of spirit of ingenuity. And some people come to the table like that. 
Some people want a sacrament that rewards those who have been really good this week. And that's what they're after. Others want a table that makes them feel nostalgic, like they're connected to something historical. And if they just get that, that's all they need. That's all they want is a table. Others want a ritual that convinces them that, you know what, God loves all humanity equally, and so everybody comes to the table. God's word reminds us that his table has an objective purpose. And that objective purpose is not connected to our felt needs at any given moment. The Lord's table proclaims a particular death. It renews a specific covenant with a specific people. It calls us to a particular obedience. And this table can be misused if we do not come rightly. It can be profaned. And the misuse of God's table bears consequences. That misuse leads to incurring the guilt of Jesus' body and blood. And those who bear the guilt of Jesus' body and blood incur the judgment of the Lord. If you struggle with coming to the table too lightly, maybe you've forgotten that. Maybe you don't want to remember that. After all, all this judgment language, that sounds more like Old Testament wrath than New Testament love, doesn't it? Sounds more like law than gospel. Do not shy away from this, this real possibility of judgment at the table. We need to be convinced of the possibility of judgment because we need to be convinced of what that possibility, what that judgment reveals about the character of the Lord. What does God's judgment reveal about his character? It reveals that he is incredibly zealous for his covenant. This is why God calls us to consider how we approach the table. Not because he wants us to eat and drink with a somber attitude that we must put a frown on our face before we come to the table. As the Pharisees did when they were mourning or when they were fasting so that everyone else could see that they were really serious about this. It's not so that we would always be on pins and needles as to whether we can come, whether we ought to come, or what might happen if we don't come the right way. The Lord calls us to consider how we approach the table because he wants you to know that even if sometimes you forget the significance of the things that we see and do here, he never forgets the covenant that is represented and confirmed to his people in this table. The Lord does not take his promises lightly. He has not forgotten the price of redemption that was paid to ransom sinners to himself. The bread and the cup that we eat and we drink symbolize and confirm God's covenant faithfulness to his people. A redemption wrought with the body and the blood of the only Son of God, the Savior Jesus Christ. And the Lord does not forget that. And so when we come to the table, he wants us to know that we come in a sense the same way that those people came to Mount Sinai to see the signs laid out before us, to be renewed in God's covenant, to see the signs and the seals of what is spread before us, and to hear these words in the back of our hearts and in our minds, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you today. And God is zealous for His covenant. That's what we see in in His judgment. We need to be assured that God is deadly serious about keeping His promises. Secondly, though, 
this possibility of judgment displays God's love for his children. There are two kinds of judgment that are listed in this passage. There is a judgment of destruction and there is a judgment of discipline. And those who have no real interest in the covenant promises of God receive judgment unto condemnation. That's what it says. Condemned along with the world. But those who are his own receive an utterly different kind of judgment. It's the judgment of discipline. It is the judgment of a loving father who is pointing out the error and the danger of our sinful tendencies, which we are still struggling daily with, each and every one of us. It is the love of the Father to care for His people, to soften hard hearts, to draw us to repentance. Someone asks, does this still happen? Does God still afflict us in our bodies for the sin of our souls? Is that something we need to worry about? Does God still do that? Well, surely He does. That, too, is a promise He gave to His people. Every son I love, I discipline. There's a warning there. The warning is that we can go too far with that. We can think that we've got some sort of special revelation, so we play the matching game with our sins and our trials. You know how it goes. You start with a mental list of all the things that you're suffering, your trials, your afflictions, your hardships, and that goes on one side and one column. And then you think of all of the sins that you can possibly imagine that you've committed in the last 30 days. And you do that job of trying to backtrack and trace with a line from one to the other. That's not how it works. The Lord doesn't want us to play the matching game with our sin. He does want to draw us to repentance. But it doesn't work that way. Who sinned that this man was born blind? The disciples asked. No one. Sometimes the things that we're suffering, the Lord has brought in our paths simply because there is no other way to see the kind of uh, glory that we could perceive in Jesus Christ, the kind of fatherly love, until we see Him sustaining us through hard things. So don't go too far with that, but you do need to know that, that this judgment, this discipline is God's promise for His children. It is His fatherly love, His discipline, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded at the table of the possibility of judgment. We ought never to come too lightly to the supper. The Lord is deadly serious about His covenant. He is deadly serious about His promises to His people. So that's what's possible at the table. Judgment is possible at the table. But let's press on now to consider, well, what is necessary? Here's the second point, that when we come to the table, we need to consider the necessity of discernment. And here's the major tension in the text. Because, yes, Paul is giving this warning passage, but at the same time, he is instructing them on the kind of perception the people in Corinth ought to have about what's happening there. And there seems to be a one-to-one correlation. What do you need to do if you would eat and drink at the table rightly? Well, in a sense, you need to discern. In in a word, you need discernment. Now, our English translations, uh, most of them use three words uh, for this single concept, although it's really two words in the Greek. In verse uh, 28 there, the word is examination. That seems to be the opposite of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Well, no, come with examination. But then the other word shows up twice, and you've probably got a footnote in your ESVs on verse 31, 
that this idea of discernment shows up in verse 29 and verse 31. That if we eat without discernment of the body, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. But if we eat with judgment or with, with discernment of ourselves, we do not come into judgment. And so here's what's necessary at the table of the Lord. It's discernment. But there are two things you need to discern. You need to discern yourself and you need to discern the body. Consider those in turn. When we come to the table, it's required that we discern, we examine ourselves. No, just for clarity's sake. Let's start with what that does not mean, okay? When Paul says we ought to examine ourselves, he's not saying that we ought to look inwardly to find some worthiness for the table in us. Oh, you know, I'd really like to come to communion this week, but on Tuesday, I lied to my sister. Thursday, I got angry at my neighbor. My mind was filled with impure thoughts at every idle moment. I used language uh, in, in traffic that would make a sailor blush. And the children are out and playing in the mud all day, on all afternoon, and mother calls them in for dinner until they wash their pinkies to a sparkling clean sheen. They have no business at the table, and that's the way we approach it sometimes, isn't it? Maybe if you've had a bad week, you should just let the trays pass. You can come back next time. When you've gotten your act together, when you've been good enough to come to the table, when you have earned it, when you've deserved the table that we have before us, is that what this is all about? Dear friends, don't turn the table of the Lord into an exercise in seeking out your own worthiness. That is a fool's errand. It is a dead end. It's catapulting off of the high dive into an empty pool. I don't need to know all of your secret sins and all of your secret thoughts to be able to examine every single person sitting in this room today and to tell you, you are not worthy to come to this table. You don't deserve this table. No one does. That's the whole point of the gospel. We do not come by our own worthiness. It's a small point, but notice that in verse 7, this is an adverbial worthiness and not an adjectival worthiness. We're not talking about the person who's worthy, but we're talking about the coming, the, the manner in which we approach the table that is worthy. No one in themselves is worthy of coming to Christ's table except Him, the Lord, who sets it. How does Isaiah invite God's people to the banquet of the Lord? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. So then what does it mean to discern ourselves, to judge ourselves rightly? Well, it means that you come aware of your thirst. It means that you come to the table recognizing and repenting of your poverty of righteousness. Cognizant of your need for constant and unfailing grace to keep you in the grip of salvation. If you are judging yourself rightly, that is all you will find in your own heart is a long list of reasons why you are not worthy to come and partake of the table. And that's why we have to examine not only ourselves, but also the body. 
If we examine only ourselves, we are left in despair. But if we examine the body, we come away with grace. Now, we're going to skip past all the possible interpretations of this little phrase, discerning the body. We're going to skip past all of the false interpretations of the phrase and simply cut to the chase that what it means for us to discern the body at the table is that we would come together and come to the sacrament recognizing the significance and the sufficiency of the sacrifice that is remembered here. The significance and the sufficiency of the sacrifice that is portrayed and remembered in bread and wine. The King James, if you've got that in front of you, gets it right. We come to discern the Lord's body at the table. We remember all that his death, all that Jesus' death means for thirsty sinners in need of grace. What does it mean? It means that those who come to the table empty-handed are still welcome at the table. It means that he spreads a table before you in the presence of your enemies, in the words of the psalm. That within earshot and with, with, uh, your, within sight of your sins and all the things that followed you in here, he sets a table that proclaims forgiveness and nourishment for your soul. His death proclaims the joy of recognizing that your emptiness is the key to experiencing His fullness. And His death means that even though you aren't worthy, you are invited. That's what it means to discern the body. That's what the Corinthians got so wrong, wasn't it? They came to the table thinking they deserved it. They came to the table hoping to differentiate themselves and to set themselves apart and to think how much they had and and isn't it great to be us and overlooking one another and they profaned the table. They were guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord because they came thinking that they didn't need it. But when we eat and drink in a worthy way, we come knowing that we have nothing to offer and that Christ has all that we need. Now, I can almost hear some of you hardcore reform types saying to yourselves, that's not all that's involved, right? No, that's not all that's involved. I mean, what about all that we profess together today from Westminster Larger Catechism, question 171? What does it mean to examine ourselves? And don't we have to examine our sins and our wants and our knowledge and our faith and our repentance, our love to God and the brethren and our charity to men, our forgiving others, our desires after Christ? What about all these things? Aren't we supposed to examine all these things? And yes, we ought to, and yes, that's good, but that's just it, isn't it? You notice the personal nature of all of those things. Your sins and wants. The degree of your love for God and for the brethren. There's an immense difference in coming to the table uh, in discerning Jesus' ability. His bare ability to give sinners all that they need. That's wildly different than coming to the table believing that he has given you all that you need. The difference is personal involvement. It's the difference between knowing that Jesus is perfect and believing that Jesus is your perfection. It's coming, understanding that any charity, any love, any any goodness, any repentance that is working itself out in your everyday faith comes from the Lord at work in you. There's personal involvement, and you need personal involvement in the Lord to come to this table. 
That's what it means to discern yourself and the Lord together and to unite those two. That's what it means to partake of the table in a worthy manner. It implies a personal involvement in the truth of this table. Because we don't come professing our personal worthiness, but we do come personally repenting of our sins and personally believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. As is so often the case, uh, there is a beautiful picture of the way we ought to approach the table in the Pilgrim's Progress. So many things that we encounter in the Christian life, you can find the Pilgrim's Progress. And I want to encourage you, if you've got nothing else to read on your Lord's Day afternoon, you can find it easily online or you probably have a copy at home. It's in section three. And it happens at the very beginning of section three of the first part uh, of the Pilgrim's Progress, that Christian comes to the cross and his burden is loosed. And that is such a small piece of the rest of what happens in that section. The cross and the burden falling away is just momentary. And then the next thing that happens is that Christian comes to Palace Beautiful, an inn on the way to Mount Zion that is set up for the refreshment of traveling pilgrims. And it's a picture of the church. And he wants to come in and he wants to rest and he wants to be refreshed. He wants to eat something to nourish him. It's a picture of the Lord's Supper. And he is met there by several people. He's met first at the doorway. Before he can get in, he's met uh, by a woman named Discernment. Then he goes in after he has professed that he is a Christian and Christ has rolled away his burden. He meets piety and prudence and charity. This beautiful picture of the kind of internal dialogue we ought to have in preparation for the table. And the reason it's a beautiful picture is that there's this questioning that goes back and forth, each in turn. First piety, and then prudence, and lastly charity. And each one of these women asks Christian, well, well, what next? How did you get this far? What are you doing now? Who are you bringing along with you? And at every single point in turn, Christian talks not about what he is doing, but what the Lord is doing in him. He's discerning himself rightly, this personal involvement. Here's the the last question from Prudence. She says, what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? Here's his answer. There I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross, and there I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are in me an annoyance. For to tell you the truth, I love him because I was by him eased of my burden and I am weary of my inward sickness. I would fain be where I shall die no more and with the company that shall continually cry, Holy, holy, holy. That's a good picture of what it means to come to the table discerning yourself and the Lord. I love him because I was by him eased of my burden and I am weary of my inward sickness. And the next thing that happens is they dine together on a feast of, of fine foods and rich meats. And then he goes and he lays down and he rests on a bed called peace. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful picture of what it means to come rightly to the table, to discern ourselves, to recognize that, that judgment is a possibility at the table. But discernment is the necessity that we have before us to consider our involvement in these things, to consider the promises that are given, to consider our thirst and what we find at this table to quench it. 
The amazing thing is that if we come to the table that way, we find ourselves back where we began in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, isn't it? Recognizing that the Lord works His power in weak people. Recognizing that because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. And He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do we do at the table? We boast in the Lord. Not in our own worthiness. Not in our own righteousness. And so if He is yours and you've been drawn into this covenant, let's come now to the table and boast together. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, the only one who is righteous and worthy, the only one in whom is perfect holiness and righteousness and goodness and truth. Thank you that the table spread before us proclaims your fullness for us. O Lord, draw us to yourself, we pray. We ask that some who may not yet come to the table today would consider what they've heard. Whether they've been with us for a while, whether they are young and growing and considering their own faith, whether they have rejected it, O Lord, work faith to see the fullness of Christ. Work repentance to see our need. And meet us with all that you have, all of your wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in Jesus. Meet us at your table. Fill us and feed us and nourish us by your Spirit, we pray. Amen.